every year, Memorial Day is kind of a crunch time. All of a sudden, the summer's starting, political things need to be going, they're never as far along as you want them to be, and you know that there are going to be distractions in the summer, and so it's always a, a busy time, it seems like. And I always get to, you know, Memorial Day and I'm thinking, well, you know, I should write something, you know, that, that not only is about the sacrifices that people have made, but points exactly in all the right directions of how to handle our foreign policy in ways that avoid having young people killed. And that takes a lot of time. <laughs> because you have to think about all the different foreign policy things and, and so on and so on. And, and uh, that's difficult. So it's why we have podcasts. So you can just spill out without having to struggle with a, with a pen or a typewriter, really a typewriter. Um, so I get there a lot of times and I think, well, you know, maybe I don't have something. I don't have time to write something. And then I got to think about, well, what should I write exactly? Anyway, to make a very long story that's not a long story, to stop making it so dang long, I decided really the first thing is to get people to remember the cost. And, and of course, you know, people talk about in blood and treasure, but I'm talking about in blood. Because the cost in treasure, you, you can get back. We can work harder. We can do something. Uh, the cost in blood, you can't get back. So we did a meme, we kind of cheated, just did a meme on Monday, didn't do a full commentary. And, uh, but I think it, it uh, very simple. It just showed a, a man in a uh, graveyard with, you know, the rows of, of uh, veterans who gave their lives. It seems to me that if, people remember the cost, then whether you want there to be less foreign intervention or you think here's, here's a case where we must or whatever you think, I'm convinced that the more the American people recognize the real cost. This is not the thank you for your service. That's not what this is. This is people will die. And look, people die all the time. A lot of time, you know, I, I can certainly envision cases in which I would fight and risk death because there's no other alternative. I mean, that, that's, that's certainly, um, I'm glad uh, we fought and won World War II. I'm not so glad we fought Vietnam. So, so there's, we can make the arguments every which way, but what worries me most is that I think sometimes we don't fully remember the cost. It's so easy to remember to say thanks for your service, to you know think about how great it is and so on and so on and how boy we're appreciative, but you know the cost of someone who's who lost a son or a daughter in Afghanistan or Iraq or or wherever, that's something altogether different. So. We had a very simple message, and uh, throughout the week, I've liked that message more and more and more. Okay, and you're referring to what you've been writing and publishing on thisiscommonsense.org, 
And that's what this podcast is all about, This Week of Common Sense. You're Paul Jacob. Your program at thisiscommonsense.org is called Common Sense with Paul Jacob. And it's under that moniker, I think you can find uh, the program on Facebook. So I think we've got bases covered. We could run the music and start the program. I'm just so glad because nowhere in the notes did it say I was Paul Jacob. And so I was just, I was going to try to, you know, text you, somehow get that information. Thanks very much. And that is, of course, Timothy Verkula, uh, who is uh, the co-commentator. The, I think if, if this was a sport, you'd be the color man. I'd be the play-by-play and you'd be the color man. So I don't well, know I do- if that gets you some advantage here or whether I'm, I'm privileged and that's why I'm not the color man instead. But anyway. Well, on the video, I put myself in sepia. So in, in, in a sense, that's color or lack thereof. I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> I think it's more the lack thereof. I should also mention that uh, I haven't really heard any reports. Uh, our, our last commentary of the week was about the anniversary. This is the 32nd anniversary of the Tiananmen, Tiananmen Square massacre. Uh, of course, there were also, what, six, eight weeks of protests uh that that preceded that and uh, we'll talk about that some but i've got my free hong kong shirt on and uh it's it's hong kong has always been a place that has kept that memory alive and of course now under the national security law um it's five years in prison if you attend an unauthorized event and, you know, I don't know if you're supposed to constantly be calling the police to tell them exactly what's authorized or not authorized. But, uh, but anyway, we'll get to that last. But um, this is, we're, we're recording this. We won't put it out until June 5. But June 4, uh, I think, has become a super important date uh, in human history. For me, uh, what happened in Tiananmen Square uh, really affected my life. We'll get more into that uh, as we go, but I think we should take them in order. And so on Tuesday, we had Asian privilege with a question mark. Are Asians getting ahead just because of all the societal privileges, all the structural pro-Asian things that are going on? The schools all run by Asians. The school boards all Asian, uh, you know, and and the rules that say only Asian uh, answers are considered correct. I mean, maybe that's helping them. Of course, I'm being facetious because I think so much of the white privilege argument is silly. And I think it's maybe easier for some people to see that if they think about Asian privilege. Uh, Is that what's what's driving Asian success? And I I, uh, read George Will's column last weekend, and that column was about uh, basically using anti-Asian racism against Asian students who have performed well on tests and grades and so on uh, in every way that you can measure and calling that diversity. And he points out that uh, Thomas Jefferson High School, which is a big STEM 
you know, science, technology, was it engineering and math? Uh, how do you like that? I know, I know the acronym. And um, I'm, I probably still couldn't get into the school, but I do know the acronym now. It's a magnet school and it's it's big, big deal. I mean, if, if I were in high school and, and uh, you know, studied hard, I'd want to go somewhere else because I'm not into the STEM. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, very competitive. It's got a long history. It's very prestigious. And it is anyone can get in. You take the test. The people who score the highest get invited. They come or they don't come. And then the person who scored next. And, and that's how they figured out the slots. Not anymore. That has been changed. And but what what stuck out to me so much in this was a number and it was really two numbers that stuck out to me one was 73 73 is the percentage of asian american students who make up this thomas jefferson high school tj high school uh and and that 73 percent is drawn from a student body overall in fairfax county virginia very close to me one one county north um and that 73% comes from a just under 20% of the, of the overall student body is Asian American. That's more than three times, almost four times their percentage of the student body. And so they're grabbing these slots at way, way beyond what other folks are doing of other races. What about white folks, the so-called European Americans? Uh, well, we are 38% of the overall student body, but we are just under 20% of the slots in this Thomas Jefferson magnet, hotshot, uh, smartest people school. I think you said that wrong. They're, they're over 38% of the general population. Is that what you meant? Of that area or what? They're 38% of the school age population. In other words, of the of Fairfax County and Fairfax County schools, and this isn't just high school; it's the way they count right. high school. So that's the pool from which the magnet draws. Yes, basically, twenty percent of the magnet school is white folks, uh, European Americans, and and but they're thirty-eight percent, so they're half as likely to to get in as their racial demographic. Interestingly enough, and I can't remember exactly, I don't have it in, in front of me, uh, but the, actually I do here somewhere, but the uh, Hispanic and Black population in that district was, I believe, 26% Hispanic and 10% uh, Black. They had a membership or entry to this you know, magnet school, 3% and 1%. So they were way below. But Okay, so, so this is the way it breaks out by race. No one's made a legitimate argument, uh, and it's not really what they're arguing, that somehow this test is biased, because if it is, then let's fix the test so it's not biased. And, oh, you can't get all the bias out. Well, let's get every little smidgen that we can get out, and then let's have the test already. Um, or we could go by grades, or we could go by other things, but you'd want some empirical measurement. Um, now, I have long advocated that for uh, honors programs, accelerated programs, that they should let anyone in who agrees to do the extra work. 
And if they can keep up and do the extra work, then they stay. And so I would, I would be less test oriented to allow people to advance into more demanding academic pursuits, because I think almost anybody can do more than they're doing if they have the desire to do it and why would you hold them back? But in this case where you've got limited slots, you, you have to do something to say, okay, we're gonna have it and here it is by merit. And what's interesting to me is why are they, why are Asian American students beating the crap out of everybody else? And I don't mean that physically. I mean that they are getting the better test scores. And that, to me, that's the most amazing part of this whole thing. Because don't all of us who talk about this, isn't the reason we talk about it is because these are kids and they got their whole lives in front of them. And if some of them aren't making the grade, and if we see that it's because, you know, maybe it's not, we're not speaking in their language or we're not doing this, or we're not seeing the problems they're having, we want to overcome all those problems. And we want to, we want to all succeed. We want to teach everybody to go, oh, you know, Ricky figured out a way to do it. Sally uh, just figured out a new way to do the math faster. Let's, let's all learn from each other. And that should be the attitude. And if that's the attitude, wouldn't you look at the folks who are three or four times the percentage of the, themselves in the population in getting into these accelerated programs and the best schools and say, what are they doing? And it turns out that, well, one of the things they're doing is studying. They're studying. And also turns out, and I think this is maybe the most instructive part of this whole piece, they're being shamed for studying. They're being attacked and belittled and mocked for studying because the superintendent complained about all the money that Asian American parents are spending on these practice tests and books and different things to prepare for these for the test to get into TJ high school. And, and I think we can all imagine some parents, you know, just like the little league parent that maybe just kind of took it a little bit too far in terms of encouraging, you know, the kid to play and, and so on. You can imagine that. But it's hard to argue with the success. It's hard to argue with 73%. You're 20% of the whole, but you're 73% scoring in this upper crust. And, and the Virginia Secretary of Education referred to taking these tests and practicing for this big test to get admission test to get into TJ high school as using like it was just like using performance enhancing drugs in sports. Now this is insanity. This is not only we don't want to know how to do better because we see it and we don't we don't feel like working or something or we think working is wrong whatever it is this is the kiss of death to public education in america all of this i i think all the you know it's, it's kind of gone under the rubric of uh, of uh, critical race theory but all of this desire to make everything about race all of these gaps 
I think we talked about this some last week. I can't remember what the commentary was, but people trying to close these gaps, forget about the gaps. If somebody isn't getting the material, if someone isn't getting what they need, if that is you think because there's some racial component, go at it. We got to go at it however we can, but it's not about closing some gap between races or genders or sexes or ethnicities or tall and short. It is about helping kids learn. And all this focus on the gap is about older people's racial fixations and politicking. It has nothing to do with education. In fact, it has everything to do with ignoring education so that you can go on these ridiculous political programs. And uh, so this, and I've been wanting to write this for a long time. And I know some people, you know, belittle that, oh, well, Asians are the model minority. Um, look, if your stereotype in society is that you're not dangerous, you're, uh, and nobody, <laughs> nobody thinks, hey, go pick on some Asian kid because they may know karate or whatever other things I don't know and kick your butt. So it's not as if somehow they're weak or anything, but they're not viewed as dangerous. They're viewed as studying too much. Um, you know, it's, it's these sorts of stereotypes, it seems to me, are the stereotypes you want. And I remember, I remember seeing a thing when my kids were, were little, uh, littler, and uh, it was in the paper and it was, it was a question asked, uh, because this has been, the other thing is that Asians have been outperforming folks for a long time. And, and I'll get to why I think they're outperforming because I haven't really gotten to that yet. But I saw this thing that they asked parents of successful students and they had asked some uh, Asian American parents and some European American parents. And, uh, and the Asian American parents, number one reason why their kid did well is they worked hard. And the number one reason given for why the European American uh, students did well, by, given by their parents, was that they were talented. Now, I suspect both of those were true for, for all the kids, but I thought it was very instructive that the white parents basically said they're talented as if some, it was something given to them almost. And the Asian parents had said they worked hard, meaning it was something that they earned. And uh, it, it makes a big difference. And, and what do I think is the difference? Well, the difference between, uh, the, the reason why I think Asian American students are doing better is because their parents make it a priority. They prioritize education in the same way that Jewish Americans do better. They're better educated. They make more money. They, why? Well, because they, their whole culture values education. And their parents kind of go, hey, did you study? What'd you get in that class? Whoa, why didn't you do that? Why? They're concerned. And, and look, you know, you know, Jewish kids or Asian kids are going to complain. Sometimes there's a little bit too much pressure. And there's extended families. Uh, and sometimes that can be a little bit, uh, you know, suffocating that, oh, my family demands this and that. 
it also has the effect of holding societies very tightly together. And it has the effect of kids not being left behind. And so that's a very good thing. And I think the good outweighs the bad. The other thing is a lot of times when you're talking, especially in the, in the black community, um, and of course, increasingly, these aren't white community, black community, we're all, we all know each other and, and we're mixing it up and I think that's wonderful. But in the black community is the highest rate of out of wedlock birth. So, uh, and the lowest rate is in the Asian American community. So they have more of them have two parents. That kind of, to me, that doubles the odds at the, at the very least. And of course, we know that two parent households, the statistics are off the charts in terms of them being wealthier, more able to do things. Um, so, you know, all of that's there. But the numbers, I think, are very interesting because we're talking 69% of Black babies born to a single parent. And we're talking about less than 12% of Asian American babies being born to just one parent. We also are talking now about 28% of white babies being born to just one parent. And it's higher, I think it's, I, I can't remember what it was on Hispanics, but I think it's, uh, what was it, 52, 52%. Those are wildly different, but here's the thing. The white, the rate for whites, I remember having this uh, discussion with some people before and someone saying, well, you know, why are white folks like me speaking about uh, a problem for the black community? And I made the point one that, you know what, I, I'm not, I'm, I don't believe in these, you only get to talk this far about this community or that community. You're not helping anybody of any other community by walking on eggshells and not saying what you truly believe. As long as you care about people. If you're a jerk, you know, shut up, I guess. But if you're not a jerk, please speak out and, and be part of the conversation. Um, but the reality is this, this is not a problem of just the black community. This is a huge, huge problem in the white community, in the Hispanic community, in all the communities. The truth is almost 12% of Asian American kids being born to a, a single parent and, and whatever degree is out of wedlock because they didn't get a marriage license, but they are in love and living and taking care of the kid. That's no problem. I'm not, this isn't an argument about legalized you know, marriage and so on and so on. This is an argument about taking care of kids and having a society in which people who have kids are expected to take care of them. And people are thinking that's how it works. And, and you know, that's why people have always been kind of fixated about sex and couples getting together and so on, because they don't want a society like ours, where so often a poor kid has nobody looking out for, for him or her nobody looking out for him or her and if you care about people you cannot want a society in which nobody cares about the kids so anyway let's learn let's copy every good thing that any culture is doing and i just submit to you that why the entire education establishment hasn't said wait a second 
we're going to have a week of teach-ins. Could some Asian American parents just come in and just tell us what you're doing? We won't judge or anything else. We just, just hear it so we'll know because that's what we want to look at because something you're doing is working and we want, we want our kids to succeed. It's a real thorny issue because I think that you have in the title, I believe, one of the problems, right? That's the word privilege. And, um, you know, when I was a kid, the word privilege was used a lot by the other sector of the population than it is now. That is, conservatives used it. And they used it to call attention to the to try to get people to be grateful. That's how it was used when I was a kid, and probably when you were where you lived too. You don't have this by right. You're a lot older than I am, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's a little younger, but the idea was that you know I would be we would be scolded by the the older people that you don't have this with let's say a sports program because it's your right because you know this is your birthright or is your right under the law. This, you have it as a privilege, they would say. And therefore, you should be grateful for it. That was what their argument was. Now, today's talk about privilege is not that kind of an argument. Today's arguments about privilege is to make you feel ashamed for having the privilege, because to have a privilege is something to not have it by right, and everybody should have what they have by right. And uh, and that, that is by justice. Now, my argument about all the for, for a long time now is that the problem with talking about privilege and justice is that everybody should have what they have by justice. And, but if some, but if some people have something by justice and other people have it by injustice, the problem is not that the people who have it by justice says they have it is their privilege. The problem is that the other people are treated unjustly and that needs to be stopped. Okay. We all, I think we should all agree on that, but this is a case where, in a just society, many things happen by merit. And here they're getting rid of a meritocracy where people are having it by merit, by what they're doing or their abilities. And they're moving to some other conception. And the talk of privilege is allowing people to get rid of any element of merit in society and working hard and knowing things and, uh, and doing things right. And so they're muddying up, by the talk of privilege, they're muddying up the categories by which we judge people's behavior. And they've completely messed it up. So people on the left generally, but I think generally in, this, uh, in the population now, don't understand the terms they're using when they talk about these problems. You know, another place I think this rears its ugly head is so many people who will talk about the rich as if, and, and of course that some corporations don't pay taxes. Now, of course, they're following different things that the tax code has encouraged them to do. I mean, congressmen are going to, you know, you know, just denounce these companies, but they're the ones who wrote the laws that say, hey, do it this way and you won't have to pay any taxes because they're wanting these companies to do other things. I don't particularly like that. I like flat taxes. I like there being no political manipulation behind the tax code, but it's, it's ridiculous. But anyway, we have gotten to a point where wealth and people who are rich are derided in a way that I think is morally repugnant and is also 
societally dangerous. And, you know, it's like eat the rich. Well, I've never considered myself rich, but I don't think that someone, I mean, almost everyone I know who's richer than me, it's because they made certain life choices that were different, maybe better, maybe not better. I mean, there's plenty of people who are richer than me that I'm glad I did it my way. I wouldn't have wanted to do it their way. But almost everyone who has any money that I know of works their tail off. And so I always say to someone who doesn't like the rich, who, who are you talking about? Because anyone you want to go after who got their money in some nefarious way, who got it because they had some political connection or who got it in some dishonest or fraudulent way, well, then go after them all day long. But the, the idea of going after people who worked hard and did things um, to make it in the economy, you've got to please different customers. It's, you know, we're not out there in the marketplace just throwing money around to anyone who opens up a shop. I know that's not the way, you know, I'm not a very good shopper. I don't shop that way, but I can tell you, I listen to my wife and I listen to other folks and, and, you know, they know who's, well, that didn't work. That didn't, you know, it cost this much. They can tell you, and I can tell you on things that, that I buy exactly how much it costs. And if it's $2 on a $50 item, $2 different, that's a, that's a ton of difference. And so anyway, it's uh, um, the, the fixation on rich people as if they are inherently bad uh, is, is like the fixation on money being somehow that money is the root of all evil, when of course it's the love of money that is the root of all evil in that, uh, what is it, a proverb? Um, anyway, it's, uh, it's not Shakespeare, is it? I think that is the Bible, isn't it? Yes. So uh, anyway, this is, uh, we, should, we should move on because we get to sue somebody next. And I always like doing that. And the first line of your piece, You're Sued, from June 2nd is, firing politicians is what democracy is all about. Yes. Uh, I grew up in Arkansas. And uh, one of my favorite uh, accomplishments in life has been being involved in the term limit effort in Arkansas. And I recount that it was put on the ballot all volunteer. <clears throat> a, uh, it was a ton of money, half a million dollars spent against it, uh, all the power structure in the state against it, and the grassroots group won. Uh, we at U.S. Term Limits helped. Always very proud uh, because it was largely the corrupt Clinton gang, many of whom in the years after term limits passed went to prison for one bit of corruption or another. Not Mr. Bill, not uh, Hillary, but so many of their friends and colleagues and cronies. Uh, uh, it was like a shockwave. And term limits was part of that because it shook up things. And people realized that these kingpins controlling the legislature uh, and, and controlling graft were not going to be there forever. One of the big uh, senators, I think he'd been in office for 30 years almost, uh, Nick Wilson, uh, the FBI, uh, right as term limits were taking effect, came in and, and uh, 
arrested him, indicted him on all these different counts. He was running uh, all kinds of uh, rackets through the prison system, and they were taking money from uh, that was paid into uh, uh, child support uh, funds and using those for their own purposes and so on. Really nice stuff. Um, but so, so term limits really kind of was the, the only time in my life, having grown up there, that I saw the political establishment take a licking. Well, they came back in 2004 and they put a measure on the ballot that said establishes term limits. They didn't bother to tell anybody what the limits were, that there were already limits and that this actually doubled the limits. So we ran a big campaign, US term limits helped the Arkansas term limits group and, uh, and we whipped that. It had won in 19, or yeah, 1992 with 60%, 2004 when they tried to weaken the limits, the voters said no with 70%. Interesting, and you'll see why later. Uh, so a few years after that, 10 years to be exact, they come back with the legislature passing numerous attacks on the citizen initiative process, how we got term limits and how we get other reforms a lot of times, and a measure to dramatically weaken the term limits. 16 years, instead of six years in the House or eight years in the Senate, 16 years, you pick them either one, and it meant that people were never going to switch seats. They're going to grab a seat and hold it for 16 years. Seniority system comes back, the whole, just a, a terrible move. If you don't want term limits, then abolish them. Don't go to some ridiculous length and pretend. Well, voters were not only tricked because that measure didn't say that they were lengthening term limits, but also because that measure did say that they were, were uh, going to ban any gifts from lobbyists to politicians. Now, we ran a campaign, weren't able to spend as much as we would have liked to, uh, but we lost, it was like 53, 47. Uh, so many people I know who told me later, oh, I voted for that, I thought that was term limits, and we banned lobbyist gifts. Well, to this day, it didn't ban lobbyist gifts. The lobbyists are buying any meal. You Pretty much if you're an Arkansas legislator, you get a free meal every meal of the day. Also, people realized, oh my goodness, it's 16 years. So we came back, worked with folks there, petitioned to put a measure on the ballot in 2018. It made the ballot, had more than enough signatures. They challenged it with all the different laws they have. They were able, weeks before the election, to get a court to say, no, they, you don't have enough signatures. We've thrown out enough. And, and let me be clear, they didn't say we've thrown out these signatures because these people aren't Arkansas registered voters who signed this petition. What are you guys doing? No, <clears throat> they know that there are Arkansas registered voters who signed the petition and who wanted to. They threw them out because of things like the stamp that the notary who notarized the petition used bled over onto one of the lines of the, of the petition, one of the words that was in the little preamble of her signature, completely ridiculous things like that. There was a measure thrown out this last time, 2020. In Arkansas, the, the, one of the laws the legislature has passed in this time between basically 2013 and now is 
that you have to get a criminal background check for any paid petitioner, which of course you don't have to do for any other job. Now you might wonder, well, how many different paid petitioners have been convicted of crimes in Arkansas? I mean, it sounds like there must've been a lot of criminal activity. Zero, zero. That's how many. That's how many have been prosecuted and convicted of any sort of wrongdoing in the petition process, zero. Um, and so they, but they, they make you spend this money. And of course, part of what they're trying to do is just make it difficult, cumbersome, expensive, cause petitioners to say, I don't know if I wanna work someplace where you have to have a criminal background check. Sounds like they're looking to criminalize this process. Very, very offensive to me personally to, to think that they would do something like that. It's just outrageous. It'd be like saying, yeah, you can vote, but we need a criminal background check first. It is and, a First Amendment right to petition. And uh, also, you mentioned that uh, they don't have that restriction for people petitioning to put candidates on ballots. Right, right. Well, that's sort of a telltale sign of something, isn't it? It certainly is, <clears throat> and it should be to the court. For one, it's something of an equal protection violation because you're basically saying this activity is somehow dangerous or you're, you're well, they're basically saying that even though they don't have any evidence of that, but they're saying that. But then you're saying, but we're only going to police it over here where you might pass a law that would limit our terms. We're not going to police it over here where someone gets on the ballot. And uh, so anyway, this group that last time had their measure thrown off the ballot, they had gotten all the criminal background checks they were supposed to get. And you get a little sheet that says, okay, here's a Tom Johnson, you know, Sally Jones, here's their thing. And you put them all together and you do a list and you do an email and you send it to them. You say, here are all the criminal background checks. <clears throat> that is what they did. However, when their petition was challenged, they alleged that they didn't say these people passed their criminal background check. And that by law, they had to tell the Secretary of State that not only did they get these criminal background checks, but that these people had passed. Now, <clears throat> all of them had passed, <laughs> but all of the Arkansas voters who took the time walking out of a Walmart or something with a kid in one arm and a gallon of milk that stopped to sign that petition and said, oh, this is great. Thanks for being here. All their signatures were thrown in the trash because the way it works in Arkansas and maybe Pakistan is that if you didn't say the magic words, they all passed, even though they all passed, the state courts are going to throw all those signatures out. <clears throat> now, so that's, that's the world we lived in, in Arkansas, as this year began, 2021. We lived in a world in which they had done everything imaginable to destroy the citizen initiative process, where they had cheated with ballot titles to give themselves extra time and to completely gut term limits. And in fact, there was a new measure in 2020, I forgot to mention. And if this is confusing to people, just imagine if you lived in Arkansas and had to actually pay attention. Um, it is confusing because they're back year after year after year 
wrecking any sort of democratic process purposely and wrecking term limits because they want to rule forever. Because left to their devices, the Arkansas legislature is as dangerous as any political body on this planet. So coming in, they in 2020, they also changed the term limits. They changed the term limits, their own term limits, from 16 years to 12. Well, now, wait a second. Wait a second. They're not that dumb. What? 16 years to 12? Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Well, here's why. I told you that they threw out our measure in 2018. But they threw it out with only weeks to go before the election. So it was already printed on the ballot. And in our ballot title, because it's a citizen initiative, we actually have to tell people what's in it or someone could sue us and knock it off the ballot. So we did tell them. We told them there's a 16 year limit and we're changing that back to the other limits, six years in the House and eight in the Senate and a 10 year overall limit in the legislature. Well, the court said we can't pull it off the ballot, but you know, we won't total it and, and obviously we won't count the votes to make that an enacted constitutional amendment. However, several large counties did report what their vote totals were on the measure. And these were big counties that usually aren't the best counties for term limits, but the numbers that came back were 78% in favor of the original strict term limits. The ones that our opponents said were the strictest in the nation, which of course the voters of Arkansas said, how did we get so lucky? All right. Anyway, other 79%, other, uh, 80%, they were all in the upper 70s, 80% range. So over time, Arkansas first, Arkansas voters first said, we like term limits, 60% of us, it's enacted. Then they tried to weaken it and 70% said, no, don't weaken it. And then after they destroyed it in trickery and it came back with a real term limit, 80%, nearly 80%, said, yes, that's what we want. And that's why they realized if that ballot title goes back up and we have to defend 16 year term limits, we're dead meat. So they changed it to 12 years. And that, you might say, well, that's a compromise with the voters. This is a good thing. And I guess to whatever degree that's true, you're about to find out how little, uh, then that is a good thing. They happen to grandfather themselves in, of course, with their 16 years. So they can use serve 16 years. And the limits in Arkansas have always been lifetime. And they took off the lifetime limits. So now you can serve 12 years, but then you have to take a four-year break. However, if you only serve 10 years, you only have to take a two-year break. And then you can come back. And so what's likely to happen is that people will serve 30 of 34 years taking a little break, maybe their campaign manager will run that term, maybe their wife will run, maybe their husband will run, you know, maybe their, their crazy uncle will run, who knows? But this is a recipe for no real term limits, none. In fact, one of the interesting things is a guy I've known, a very liberal guy, uh, Max Brantley, uh, we disagree on almost everything, including term limits until after this last session, he has pretty much said, in fact, I'll just quote what he said, I was never a supporter of term limits until this bunch got in office. 
and gave themselves essentially unlimited terms and set about riding, running roughshod over human rights. I bring you all of this. Uh, well, and, and, and wait, one more thing, one more thing. Oh my goodness. So then this year, we enter this year, they've completely destroyed term limits. They can serve for 30 of the next 34 years. They have, their pay has been increased. They've, they've full of scandals. Uh, the guy who authored the amendment that weakened term limits in 2014, he's now in federal prison for corruption. I mean, it's just a complete mess. And what do they do this year? They come back with more ways to destroy the process. For instance, now you cannot gather a petition signature as a paid person if you have ever in your life been found guilty of trespassing or vandalism or any drug offense. We're talking misdemeanor offenses. If you are 65 years old today, and you want to make some extra money and you really care about this, you want to be a paid petitioner. But when you were 18, you trespassed somewhere or you got stuck with some vandalized, vandal, vandalism, yeah, there you go, um, charge or whatever, or you're one of so many people who have a drug charge, a misdemeanor drug charge. Someone, yeah, you were at a concert and someone got you with a, a roach or something, you can't, you can't be a paid petitioner in Arkansas. Now, does that make sense? Do they say you can't be a legislator if you've done any of those misdemeanors? No, no, you can be a legislator. You can be governor if you want, but you can't collect signatures because to these legislators, collecting signatures on a term limits petition is the most dangerous thing that any citizen can ever do, frankly. So here's the good news. <laughs> <laughs> We've been waiting a while for the good news. <laughs> we sued them. I have been, I was involved in a, a court case. I was an expert witness uh, back in 2013 when they first came with these ridiculous laws and we sued in state court. And, and my experience has been the state courts are, uh, one way to say it would be crooked. Uh, another way to say it that maybe is nicer is just political and they make their decisions based on what the state's political establishment would like the constitution to say. And Arkansas court in my estimation fits that, that bill. So, but anyway, we were in state court because the Arkansas constitution is wonderful on these issues. It's wonderful. It says that the state can't do all kinds of things that the courts let them do anyway. So we won at the district court level, all the evidence was on our side. Then we lost four to three in the, in the uh, state Supreme court. Now we are in federal district court. And I say, we, I wasn't part of that other case. I was simply a, a uh, expert witness and a cheerleader. Um, a loud yelling cheerleader. And, uh, and then um, in this case, I'm involved because Liberty Initiative Fund, which has helped fund some of the activities in, in Arkansas, uh, both on term limits and on initiative and referendum stuff, is one of the plaintiffs because we want to help Arkansas term limits get this measure on the ballot. And we can't do it if, if the First Amendment right to actually have a process has been taken away. U.S. term limits join the suit. 
Arkansas term limits, several activists there. And, uh, and I think we will win and we will change that law. Uh, but it is not easy for regular folks to get into court. And the fact that legislators don't give a damn about whether what they're doing is unconstitutional or not, and that they constantly are trying to wreck and destroy democracy if it has any threat to their own political power. Um, this should be something that Democrats, Republicans, left, right, liberal, conservative, all across the spectrum, if we don't have a process where citizens can overrule our servants, well, then, then we're going to end up being the servants. And uh, anyway, it, this is exciting for me to see that we're in the battle. We're beginning to claw back the right to put a term limits measure on the ballot in Arkansas and, uh, and hopefully uh, do something about that rogue legislature there. So what is it about the political culture of Arkansas that makes Arkansas politics and legislature so corrupt? Well, you know, it's, it's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I can remember uh, during Clinton's time, I had uh, someone said, why is Arkansas so corrupt? And I think they, they may have been from New York or Chicago or something else. I was kind of looking at them like, what are you talking? I mean, come on, you're, I mean, you're from New Jersey. What are you saying? Arkansas is corrupt. Any place, look, um, um, sunshine is the best disinfectant. Any place where people can do stuff in the dark is gonna, is gonna fester corruption. And, and when you have, it's why it doesn't surprise me that the same people who, you know, Arkansas had all this corruption that was discovered when term limits were first passed and then went into effect. There's been no real corruption for years, nothing of any serious order. And then all of a sudden there's this effort to gut term limits and to gut the initiative and the people leading it are corrupt. They're taking all kinds of kickbacks for money they're delivering from the legislature. And, and so uh, is this because Arkansas has a system or you know, there's something, uh, the air zipping down the Arkansas River somehow has this foul, you know, evil uh, element to it? No. Uh, it's a wonderful place, beautiful place, wonderful people, but for some reason, we, I say we, I haven't lived in Arkansas for decades, but I kind of consider that home. Uh, it's where I grew up. We, if we don't pay attention, it's, it's garbage. It's crap. It, it disintegrates into a corrupt mess. The, it's always growing up, uh, I can remember uh, moving to Virginia to take the job doing term limits and thinking, you know, Virginia will probably have a much more dynamic political system and so on. And I got there and realized, no, not really, because Arkansas had the initiative. So Arkansas had the ability for citizens to really do something about it. And Virginia really doesn't. The politics of Virginia are much more stagnant and, and unchangeable by, for the average person than in Arkansas. And so I I've been, as an adult, you know, I was 32 years old when we won 14 states with term limits uh, in a single election, pretty exciting stuff. 
whoa, you know, <laughs> you don't do that every day. I, I discovered in, in future years. Um, but the most gratifying of all was the win in Arkansas because I knew how powerful the political establishment was. I knew how much people there doubted whether they could, could get it done without, you know, just big guns coming out that they couldn't answer. I had people, the names will go un, undisclosed, who actually urged me not to help the folks in Arkansas because they didn't believe we could win in Arkansas because it was such a, a small kind of tightly controlled state in terms of where the money was and so on and so on. Um, so it was so gratifying. And then of course I do, uh, I start Citizens in Charge, a pro-initiative and referendum group, citizensincharge.org. And, uh, and we do a 50 state survey and I've worked in a lot of the states. I knew Arkansas had a good, pretty good process, but Arkansas was right up there with the, the top, you know, two or three states in terms of a process. Today, it'd be one of the worst, it'd be one of the worst. And so I've gone from just being so excited about the possibilities of what can happen because of what I saw happen in my home state. And really in the last 10 years, I have seen that all just be ripped apart and ripped apart, not because, look, I could take it if somehow the voters decided, well, we didn't like term limits after all. Sorry. Sorry, Paul. I know you like it. We don't. I couldn't blame them. And, and so they, they change it. They abolish it. That's, that's their right. But to be cheated in the way that they've been cheated and to then see them literally just ripping out the foundation to the whole initiative process there. So this is a big deal. Um, I don't think it's ever going to be talked about this way and, you know, on the nightly news or 60 minutes or, or the New York times. But for me, I want to, uh, someday I'm going to have to leave this realm and I want to leave knowing that Arkansas's term limits and petition process is back alive and well. Uh, I mentioned earlier when we were talking about the education stuff that, you know, where you have extended families and so on, children don't get left behind. And I, I just come back to that because when I said that, I thought about, and, and hopefully it came through in my expression or something, but I thought about George W. Bush's signature, leave no child, no child left behind. And it's all BS. And so much of our world is BS and we have to push past that. We have to hold people accountable for that. It's like to go to our next story, our next commentary. Uh, it's not a story. It's actually about some, some truth maybe spilling out, but it's called the worshipful and the incurious. And uh, uh, we now live in a country in which the social media platforms we use stop us from speaking the truth, in which the media that we get our news from colors that news according to their political persuasion and denies to us any possibility that some event that doesn't fit their narrative even took place. And in fact, it's not just omission, it's actually commission because they come out and say it has been debunked.
and we're talking about the lab leak. You know, now <laughs> I saw that some new head of the CDC or whatever, some big official in our in our government science. Uh, and, and that's the other thing you see is how much science is part of the government now and how the Chinese and the US scientists, government scientists, were really helping each other out in terms of, hey, don't look here. We're gonna, we're gonna, we got your back. And there's nothing in science that says you're supposed to have the back of somebody who maybe made a mistake in the lab. Um, all of this is, I just think, such confirmation that we live in a post-factual, uh, we, we live in a time in which talking about a free press is anachronistic, an, an, an an I can't say the word. Anachronistic. There you go. It is like, what's the point of a free press? If, and, and I'm not saying we should force the, the press to somehow do it exactly as I say, I'm just saying that the, the whole fun, the thrill of a free press is gone because our press is actively lying to us. And, they, and I think it's obvious. Why did they lie? Uh, and I say lie. Why did they purposely act like it was not possible for this to have leaked from a lab? Why did they act like you were a bad person if you even asked a question about it? Why did they pretend that a letter written by a scientist who literally got the money from us taxpayers and handed it to the Wuhan lab, he's the guy who wrote the letter in the Lancet, you know, that was basically, hey, everything's fine. This is, and of course, uh, Fauci's emails are out now and some redactions and some talk about gain-of-function research. We, we have a government that lies to us. We have a news media that is not our watchdog on the government. They're almost the government's watchdog on us. And that's not helpful. And we have social media that is more and more where we're communicating that in all kinds of ways can rank certain things higher, can push things to you or not push them to you, and is clearly pushing their own narrative. We are alone. The American people are behind enemy lines. Uh, and it's, it really is, I, I think, so scary. Maybe the scariest thing being that so large a percentage of the population doesn't seem to be as troubled by it as I think folks should be. Now, did you link to the Vanity Fair article? I know we talked about it briefly, but do we, did you link to it in the piece? I don't remember. We did link to it, I believe. Okay, because that had a really weird little moment, uh, a sad moment, where the scientists who did a lot of work uh, researching and, and debunking the debunk debunking, basically that's what he did. Um, and he, he claimed that uh, because of his research into what the Wuhan lab did, he was threatened and ostracized because he proposed another uh, hypothesis. And he, he said he expected it from politicians. He didn't expect it from 
science, and he means scientists. And and your point that you know uh, these scientists today are subsidized. Almost all of that science is subsidized, and uh, you know science isn't a scientist isn't a person who's been trained as a scientist. A scientist is a person who accepts public contest and disputation and falsifiability. The moment he stops this moment, scientists don't don't accept public criticism uh, in a vibrant way and instead go along for this all this other stuff and keep on getting subsidized. They're just politicians. They're not scientists anymore. They're, they're bureaucrats and politici politicians. And so I just wanted to mention that because I think that's a huge important point. I think that the reason the press talks about debunking all the time is because they're hiding what they're doing and what they're doing is bunking. They're in the bunkum business. That's their business. Their, their business is bunkum and propaganda. And they talk about debunking because the best way to, to put a bunko onto the people is to pretend you're into debunking. But they're not. They're just debunker. They're just bunkers or bunko artists. And I think that's just what they are. Uh, and that's what propagandists tend to be. And uh, especially if they have power and the press has a lot of social power. And they've done a great harm in this whole business. And there's something to the Wuhan uh, gain of function research. I don't know what it is. We don't, you don't know what it is, but it looks really bad. And it looks bad for Fauci. And, uh, and I will wanna, do wanna say that Rand Paul really does come out looking good the last several weeks. In this piece, uh, the worshipful and the incurious uh, at thisiscommonsense.org, we thank, I, it's rare that I say thank you to a politician. I thank Rand Paul, because I really think that without him, this may have just sailed, sailed on. And uh, it's, it's a real, it, it's a real problem when you know that not only um, you're, you're not getting the truth from the media, you're not getting the truth from the scientific community. And, and a term that you hear again and again these days, you, you talked about how, you know, you're not a scientist if you stop, you know, inquiring about things and being open to that. But you point out that, you know, you're not a scientist if you don't abide by the scientific method, if you're not open to to questions and, and more experimentation and, and data and so on. Well, what we hear all the time, we hear it even about the lab, there was a scientific consensus that it's unlikely to be the lab leak. Anytime I hear the words scientific consensus, I change it to one word, politics. Anytime you hear there's a scientific consensus, you know it has nothing to do with science because that's not how science works. They don't say, let's just, oh, okay, everybody do experiments and then we'll vote to decide who's right about it. So there's no scientific consensus. That is media language for politics disguised as science. Well, now that we've settled science, uh, how do we settle Tiananmen Square? Boy, it's... Uh, it's tough because, you know, I've, I think like a lot of people uh, have been paying attention to what's happening, been happening in Hong Kong. 
Uh, I will say that uh, for me, I think I said this earlier uh, at the outset, but uh, Tiananmen Square, the protests there for weeks, for weeks, and hearing Chinese students talking about democracy and about press freedom and freedom of speech. And I remember one being questioned, but you've had so little experience with freedom. Do you really even know what it is? And getting such a wonderful, wonderful response from the student who said, well, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe we don't understand freedom as much as we'd like, but we understand the opposite. And that's not what we want. And it just, it, it, it was so inspiring. I was working for the Libertarian Party at the time. And I remember after Tiananmen Square, uh, after the massacre, uh, going to a hearing, you know, one of these field hearings about ballot access law. Any other time in the history of mankind would have been the most boring thing you can possibly attend. But I remember trying to think of how to talk about it. And I decided I would start out by talking about Tiananmen Square. And you could just, you could feel the connections being made between people. The, it was, it, I think we saw what we wanted the world to be like. And we understood that, you know, the Chinese government has brainwashed, propagandized, and all kinds of things. But people are really smart about reading between the lines. And you couldn't have followed the coverage like I did and not realize the people of China want to be free. They want basic democratic rights. They want freedom of the press. They want freedom of speech. What America really offers the world that's unique that, that maybe we grab first are those things. And no matter how badly we've handled it, protected them or not protected them, no matter all the mistakes that have been made, those things are what people here and there and everywhere want. And it's so beautiful to see what the folks in Hong Kong have done to keep the memory of Tiananmen and June 4 alive. And it's so beautiful to see what the people in Taiwan are doing. I remember reading an article uh, weeks ago when people were first coming from Hong Kong to Taiwan. And it was such a cute article because the one minister who was involved in it didn't want to say too much because he was basically going, look, like everything's going to be all right. Anyone who comes, we're going to take care of. But let's not talk about it a whole lot because in essence, they didn't want to give the Chinese some reason to be more aggressive at stopping people or try to do more things to harm Taiwan or whatever. But it was such a, such a human response of, of course, if they come, we're going to help them. And, uh, and that's, that's always been the American response. And it's, it's why, uh, you know, I, I just, I see what's happening there. And I have all my life been what I would call foreign policy wise, a non-interventionist. And I consider myself still a non-interventionist. I don't wanna get involved in, in battles that aren't our battles. At the same time, I think we live in a time in which 
the, the globe is smaller and we have some bad actors that cannot control the future of this planet for my kids and grandkids and great grandkids and and posterity and uh you know it's 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 so frightening to see not just the brutality the butchers of beijing who commit this massacre and who never own up to it, never hold themselves accountable, never admit to anything. They gaslight 24-7 on every subject. But the, the efforts they go to, to stop anyone from talking about it, to prevent people from speaking the truth about what has gone on and is going on. And, uh, and when you see that, uh, it, you know, so often I read stories and, and they treat the Chinese government like it's the U.S. government or the German government or the whatever government, the Tanzanian government. These governments are different. And, and the truth is our government can do all kinds of terrible things. But if, if you don't understand the difference between a government that literally believes it can tell everyone living in their country how many children they can have and who if you have a child that they didn't authorize they may kill that child in front of you that's a different sort of government a government that puts a million people in re-education camps and all the stories that come out of rapes and sterilizations and browbeating their culture out of them and then gaslights everyone to say, oh, this is just re-education to get them into the workforce. <clears throat> this is a totalitarian nightmare that's happening in China. And I'm glad that there are people who've been lifted out of poverty, but I wanna lift them out of slavery. And China's not the only problem in the world, but I think it's number one. And we have to keep alive, not only what, the folks did in Tiananmen Square, but I've said many times on this podcast, I feel like I have a personal debt to every person in Hong Kong who marched in those protests, who took part in those protests for a year, basically, because they're smart people. They realized what they were up against and they fought it anyway. And they woke up a lot of the world. You know, the coronavirus will get a tremendous amount of credit for waking up the world. And, and maybe that's our, you know, that's our, our consolation prize is it did wake up a lot of people to what's going on in China and with the uh, Chinazis. But I think a lot of the world was already awoken because of what the folks in Hong Kong did. And, uh, and so sometimes we can't wave a wand, but we can remember and we have to. Join us. Visit thisiscommonsense.org. Visit us next week. We'll be doing more commentaries. Mm -hmm.